Welcome to another episode of Valley Investors Edge Live. Today we are hosting Mark Kerman and Scott Gayton, CEO and CFO of TKLNG Partners. We're recording on the afternoon of November 14th, 2019. Uh, TK has just reported their Q3 results uh, yesterday afternoon. They just held an investor day here in New York City. Uh, as a disclosure, I have long shares in TGP and TK. Nothing here today constitutes any sort of investment advice or, or guidance uh, from the executives I have with me here. We're just having an investor discussion with those who were not able to make it out to New York. Uh, with that said, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jay. And just as a couple of open remarks, great to be here with you in New York City um, in person. We've known you for, for years now, and you're a bold contrarian, which some better for worse for us, but appreciate the time. So thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Yeah, so we, we just saw the Q3 results that came out and, you know, it was all-time record highs for, for TGP in terms of net income and, and DCF per share. Uh, of course, last time we had uh, these all-time highs, the shares were much higher. I think they were in the 40s range or something like that. And, you know, now we're down in the 16s, so there's a little bit of a, of a split there. Uh, but before we kind of attack that and, and hopefully closing that valuation gap, uh, let's just talk big picture about the LNG market. I know we've had a lot of investor interest in that. We've seen a lot of rough stocks this year. Uh, you put out a slide showing that TGP has outperformed uh, peers to date. Uh, so just kind of a big picture view. Uh, how do you feel about the current market and over the next couple of years? Okay. Uh, this is Mark again, and um, I'll take this one on the market. I guess in the near term, we see a, a good um, – we share the view that through the next year should be pretty good. I think we've actually done better, however, than the spot market in the sense that we fixed out – not that we have a lot of ex- – spot exposure. Uh, we did fix out all of our spot ships until the uh, May of 2020 earliest. And we did those uh, a little over $80,000 on average, which when you take full utilization, which is what we've had, I think is uh, is going to stand up well to what's available uh, today on, uh, on term charters or even spot rates over this period of time. And one of these charters goes into uh, to, uh, three years. So let's talk a little bit about what, what happens after 2020. From a macro sense, we're not as excited about 2021. We're not as excited about 2022. We're, uh, I wouldn't say, I'll say pleased not to have speculative ships on, on order uh, delivering around then. I think that we've uh, prefer to save our funding capacity for a little later. Uh, projects, projects will start to come online second half of 2023, and we want to be able to play in those. And if we had speculative ships, we might not have been able to. So, um, so that's in a nutshell. I'll just kind of recap. 20, 2020 should be pretty good. We don't have a lot of exposure to it until the second half. 2021, 2022, not so great. At the, by the end of 2023, uh, projects, new projects will start to come online again. That makes sense, Mark. You know, we were talking earlier about the ships that you put on a fixed charter, and you put three of these on, I want to say it was in the 80s, lower to mid-80s. And, you know, we were talking about utilization. Right. And a lot of times when we see these results from maybe some of your peers, we see that, wait a minute, they're only getting 70% or 60% of what the brokers are reporting. Not only that, they're also only getting utilization of 70%. Uh, so is it safe to say that for your fleet, for your TC that you're reporting, uh, you're actually going to get close to 100% of that? We're going to get 100% of that, to be to be very frank. Um, you're right. The, the broker reports, we typically discount broker reports immediately for utilization. Um, but that's not the only thing that happens on, uh, and we're not trying to bash the spot market by any means because we do enjoy being a part of it at some point. And, and in fact, we're in it in LPG right now. But on a gas carrier, 
you're going to immediately start to suffer boil-off losses and other things that don't occur on a brokerage report. And so we're happy to be where we are. I guess there's one more important point, if I may, and it's a bit astray of what you've asked here, Jay, but two of these charters we've put on to Chenier, another one to Petrobras, but the two on to Chenier, those were otherwise on charter to Yemen in, 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 in past years. And, and, and um, so that was a drag on our earnings. And so not only were you earning a, a, good, a good charter rate, it's certainly much better when we were earning from Yemen. If and to the extent Yemen restarts, we'll put them back on Yemen. But right now we're earning a pretty good char charter for Tushinir on those two ships. Yeah, excellent. I, I mean, the Yemen thing has been moving around for, for several years now, and it doesn't seem like there's any clear visibility on, on that one. But it's good. You, you finally got those. Uh, was it the Malt joint venture? Correct. Yeah, because I know that was an issue with some of the refinancing at first and because it wasn't charter coverage, but it looks like you've uh, sewn that one up. You know, I, we have about 25 people on the call today, and, and those at Value Investors Edge uh, are probably very familiar with this, but we're going to release this call later as a podcast into a much larger audience. And that's why I kind of went into that time charter business. Because people say, well, 83,000, yeah, that's great, but I'm seeing broker reports at you know, 120, 130. Why are these guys, they don't participate in the upside. Why am I investing in them? It's like, well, wait a minute. If you, if you take down that 70% utilization, if you apply the, the discount to the uh, rates you're seeing on the market, I mean, your, your 80K at like a time, a long-time time charter, one or two or three years, is equivalent to maybe like 110 or 120 if we're seeing that in the spot market. That's one way to look at it, and um, we typically look at it the other way. What's the actual uh, uh, rate, the time charter equivalent of the spot rate, which is lower, but you could look at it as being higher. No matter how you look at it, when we look at our peers' results for Q4, um, I think we're, we're feeling pretty good about having done our time charters. Excellent, excellent. So we'll hope to see that continue to improve. Um, did you provide any direct Q4 guidance in your earnings release? There's so many slides in that investor day that we might have gotten a little bit buried there. Was there any sort of Q over Q uh, for guidance? I know there's a 2020 guidance. Yeah, I think what we uh, we can look at it a couple ways. One is you can go back and uh, uh, we did increase our earnings guidance for 2019 as a whole uh, by uh, roughly 10 to 11 percent. And a lot of that's going to come uh, obviously in the fourth quarter because we've already uh, ticked off three quarters of 2019. And then we also gave out our usual uh, forward guidance in uh, in the presentation. I think it was posted as an appendix on uh, online uh, where we did see that our uh, earnings will be going up, um, I think it's roughly by uh, a few million dollars between uh, Q3 and Q4, and that's where we go through and on a line-by-line -line basis, we give some of the puts and takes uh, that we see. We've obviously got uh, a number of vessels that are going to be delivering, a couple of the mall ships, uh, the Bahrain project coming online, uh, some fewer dry dock days in uh, the fourth quarter than we had uh, during uh, Q3 and earlier in the year. And if you add all that up, I think it's roughly about a 10% increase in uh, earnings expected for uh, Q4 over uh, Q3. And again, if you can't find this, it is in a separate appendix uh, on our uh, website, and it looks exactly the same as we typically would provide quarter uh, every quarter. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I usually use that one when I look at the quarter over quarters, but your Q3 came in uh, much higher than I was even looking for. It was, it was a very good result. Um, was that a factor of the LPG or what was sort of driving that increase in the results? Yeah, we did actually provide, you know, the guidance that we did uh, provide uh, to go into Q3 was it was up. Uh, sometimes it comes down to timing uh, where we've got ships that deliver maybe a little earlier than we expected. And some of it does come down to the uh, timing of maintenance uh, activities. So I don't think that there was anything major that led to some of that outperformance in Q3. 
um, you know, the, the biggest things for me is sort of the deliveries of when we have ships delivering is, is the biggest driver of increases. Right. And, and so let's talk about closing out the rest of that growth. You have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand you have five Yamal ships fully delivered and you have the sixth one coming here in maybe a few weeks. Yes. So we've taken what's called initial acceptance of our, our, our China LNG's last final um, ARC-7 icebreaker. We took delivery of that on November 6th, I believe, and we're on target to take final delivery of the ship. That's when we actually draw down and pay for the ship from DSMA on November 29th, and that'll be happening at Sabetta. That's our estimated date. And then the only other thing we have in our books for delivery still, and it's been a it's been a it's been a journey because we did have the world's largest LNG order book. It's almost bittersweet to to be ending it, um, but the product execution is good. The only other thing we have still on the books is the Bahrain terminal, the LNG terminal. The ship's already been delivered. The FSU has already been delivered. But our 30% interest in the in the terminal remains, and we like the Arc 7. Hope to deliver that. Um, this year, if not this this month as well. So we're on track uh, for, for closing out a lot of project execution. Excellent. So it's fair to say with that Bahrain, which, which would close out your growth program, uh, the Bahrain is definitely, from what you can see today, definitely by the end of the year and, and possibly in November. Did I hear that right? Never say definite, but absolutely. We're, we've been, I think if you look back at our project execution, it's been pretty good. And so when we say something's going to happen, it, it typically does. And, and, and best case, and what we can see today, it's happening this year, if not the end of the month. Let's, inshallah, as I say, but uh, but I wouldn't say definite. Okay, thanks, Mark. Yeah, you know, I, I noticed the FSU that's attached to that has been receiving higher since it delivered, even though it's delivered over a year before the project started. Is there any sort of uh, payment that you would receive if this if this project is further delayed to reasons outside your control, like downstream issues, or is it just let's all work together, start this thing up, and then, then we get paid there? So the, the 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 FSU, as you say, has been earning full hire, and that's been a, a very good 20-plus year time shredder rate since September of 2000 and of last year. As for the terminal itself, yes, we, we are of the belief that the delay is due to no fault of our own and that we will be compensated in one form or the other. Um, and so we don't anticipate at this point any loss from the project. We don't believe the, the delay is due to us. The current delay is, is due to, as you say, is, is a downstream issue, which we hope to re be resolved very shortly, within days is what I'm saying. Okay, excellent. Yeah, it would be nice to close out all the growth in 2019 and just fully focus on the final delevering and getting to that in, in 2020 and beyond. Um, as, as far as the delevering, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, it's also been kind of a question that's been asked here on Valley Investors Edge. Um, you started off with a 5.5 uh, times target. I know it was basically around that 5.5, but that's what you used. And then now it seems to be kind of a range of 4.5 to 5.5. So, so how do we think about that? Is that once we get to 5.5 and below, it, we're, we're able to maybe spend more money on repurchases and dividends, but maybe just not go full bore? Or is it you're thinking we need to drive all the way down to 4.5 now? Sure. I think if we uh, maybe refer back, if anybody's got it on their screen, to slide 79, and we do show the, uh, the range of uh, where we expect it to be from a uh, targeted net debt to uh, EBITDA, and we do see that it will deliver very quickly from 2019 to 2020, and that will continue all the way through into 2023. Uh, and this is importantly just a simple uh, status quo model. So this doesn't include uh, increased distributions, uh, increased buybacks, uh, and or any growth. So I don't think that we would have to say we'd have to be at the lower end of this range before we would look at allocating capital. I think we just have to know that we are on this track and with 
100% of our revenues fixed this year. I think it's about 97% next year, around 92 the year after. We do feel pretty good that this deleveraging profile will uh, will continue as we expect it to. So without any negative surprises, which of course you never know, but we don't expect, we do expect this delevering to continue. And having that having that visibility and that foresight will allow us to allocate capital before we necessarily get to that bottom end of the range. Okay, it's, it's good to see because you know when you look at that slide, you see that we hit that 5.5 range in the end of next year, which is it's only a year away now, right? That's right. Um, but the 4.5 that that brings us out to 2022, and and when you're putting a discount rate on things, yeah. it does certainly make a difference. So it's good to hear that you're open to to looking into that, and then you start to get a little more comfortable, right, when you get to that 5.5 range. Um, earlier today at the at the investor day, you talked about potentially adding some future projects of growth but you also mentioned that it would be a very selective process and it would be something, I think you mentioned 2023 as a potential startup. Um, can you clarify, are you, are you mostly looking at trying to find longer-term employment for existing assets, or do you think that might be some sort of new build or, or new deal on that? What you're referring to is actually new growth. So um, at, the, at the second half of 2023, and probably more so Q4 2023, if not 24 onward, we start to see a number of new projects um, by then, as Scott has just said, we look have delivered at least to the top of the range, but by then also through the bottom of the range, depending on what else we've done. So we should be ready to, uh, to, to have new growth at that time. Now, that new growth needs to be ordered, as you know, for the LNG carriers take a long time to build. It has to be ordered as early as next year, even though the funding is not required next year. These projects, Qataris need a lot of ships, Mozambique needs a lot of ships, the United States needs ships. There's a number of places that needs a lot of ships, including Russia, but we're going to opt out of Russia. We've already opted out of, of, of the Arctic 2 pro program. So these are for new builds that we would, we would look at. In terms of our existing ships, we'll have some roll-off. I think those will be more suitable going forward for shorter charters. We're hoping to get the 12 tens type of year charters on new builds, new, new builds. Uh, existing ships might not be able to get the, that type of tenure anymore. Okay, yeah, I understand the, the timeline there, Mark. I, I think as investors look at the stock, they see a stock that's trading significantly under intrinsic value. And there's there's multiple approaches to that. I think you included a few in your slides. You included uh, earnings per share uh, to Fox, so I think it was like a 25 to 30 range. You included EV, the EBITDA range. I think that was in, I think, up to $38 at the peak there, a couple of good slides. And I think you also mentioned you mentioned the NAV for your joint ventures. I think you said the book value is around the 14s, the NAVs around the 12s, and then look, I mean that doesn't even include the above market charters on those NAVs. So kind of a big wind up there, but I guess my question is, how do you think about growth versus repurchasing your stock if it remains dirt cheap? Like let's hope it doesn't, right? Let's hope we get to 2020 and the stock's 25, 30 bucks. But look, if the stock's 16 dollars still or God forbid it's $14, um, how do we think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think that is a good question, and you're right. We did give out some uh, valuation metrics, and let's hope that we uh, that some of that ends up pulling through into the actual stock price. Uh, I think the biggest overhang that we have right now, and this is based on a lot of feedback, and I'm sure you get it too, Jay, the biggest overhang we have on the stock right now is really the leverage. Uh, if you screen us, uh, um, particularly on an annual basis, you're going to see numbers that are in the eights and the nines uh, until we start to actually have some of this cash flow come through. So I think that as that uh, delevering happens and uh, we screen better and we can have uh, maybe investors who are you know, less risk averse, 
uh, would look at us and start looking at the value that's there, then that would start to re-rate the stock higher. So I think that that is one of our fundamental beliefs is that delevering will actually lead directly to a higher stock price, uh, which would then make the arbitrage between you know, ordering ships and buying back stock a lot less. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right on that. It's certainly prudent uh, to reduce the, the leverage. Uh, but then again, we, we look across the MLB space, and look, it, it's like everyone's been hypnotized by the, you know, the delevering barrier. Everyone on the call is, we're going to delever, we're going to delever, we're going to delever. And look, these stocks are at all-time record lows across the board. I, you know, I want to say it's just a TGP thing, but you know, it's really quite a lot of your comps are also mm -hmm. suffering. In fact, you've actually done much better here to date than some of your comps. Yeah. Um, so how do we reconcile that? Is it is it just a delayed reaction to delivering, or or does the market really want what they say they want? Well, uh, I think one way that we would say it is that we are trying to walk, talk, and chew bubble gum at the same time. So we are delevering, we are buying back stock, and we are raising distributions, and we are able to do that again because of the size of our contract portfolio uh, and the the stability of cash flow that it does provide to us. Uh, I do think that this is a show-me market. Uh, I think that a lot of people are out there saying, I'm going to delever, but they don't necessarily have the visibility into their cash flow that gives investors the confidence that they will actually be able to delever. And we are right now sitting around a 3.8 times coverage ratio. That's going to go up next year, you know, assuming all else stays equal. Um, many of them are actually down in the one times range, so they actually are not reserving any cash that they can use to delever. So I think we have to look, even though they want to delever, the actual ability for them to do it is pretty constrained because their cash flow is constrained. So I think that we are on the other side of that coin. Uh, we know our cash flow coming in. Uh, our, our delevering is pretty much nailed down. We have uh, obligatory debt payments of around $300 million per year. And so long as we just operate our ships every day, we'll have no problem doing that, continuing to reward shareholders and, and then looking at doing things like you said, which is we've already spent roughly $30 million in terms of buybacks. Can we increase that? If the stock doesn't react, obviously you had a good day today. If things start to go backwards, can we take advantage of that? I think that we do have sufficient free cash flow uh, that we will be able to do that. So then when more investors are looking at the space again and they say, geez, this is such a great deal, we have reduced the share count and all of us are better off. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a tough balance to you know thread the needle and, and work on all those things at once. And you know we, we just see this this theme throughout the market where everyone's focusing on delevering at the same time that interest rates are going down, going down fast. And you would think you know a little bit academic here, corporate finance, but you, know, you pull out your textbook and if the rates are going down and your EBITDA is not going down, then it would make sense to carry higher leverage in that market. Now. You know, maybe that means you do five and a half instead of four and a half, or maybe that means you do five instead of four. Um, but it would seem, um, if your EBITDA is safe and stable and you're confident in it, that you could accept a higher leverage today than you could maybe accept a year ago. So is, is that does that make sense to you guys, or do you even look at the LIBOR spreads and, and stuff like that when you when you consider these calculations? Uh, I would say that we look at it from an earnings point of view, but I wouldn't say that we look at it from necessarily a uh, can we take advantage of it. Obviously, we're going to do our best to lower our cost of capital at any time, uh, and so that involves taking out as much high debt as you can, uh, but necessarily you know linking exactly where interest rates are and uh, what type of return that leads to. I think, no, we look at a little higher level than that and just says, where's our overall leverage? Where do we want it to be? How can we get there? And what else can we do along the way to take advantage uh, so long as we don't take our eye off that ball? Okay, that makes sense, Sky. Let, let's address uh, maybe some of the risks or, or perceived risk of, of TKLNG partners. You had this, this little issue with the Costco, right? the sanctions that, that impacted your uh, Yamal joint venture because of China LNG. 
you resolved those, right? You put out the press release and you said that you haven't lost a single dollar in earnings from that. Or any other currency. Or nothing else. No, no rubles were lost. All right, excellent. Um, what, uh, what did you do um, specifically there? I, I know maybe a little bit of a sense of what exactly happened with that transaction and how do investors like ourselves uh, feel stable in this new structure? The solution was apparent from day one, and uh, it ultimately, that's how it got resolved, albeit a few weeks after the fact. And what happened was Costco, uh, a blocked entity of Costco called Costco Dalian, owned our 50% um, of our joint venture partner, China LNG. The way that Costco was able to unblock, and as a result of, 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 of the China LNG, being blocked, then their 50% ownership in RJV and Yamal became blocked. The way that it was ended was Costco Dalian sold its interest in China LNG to a non-blocked part of Costco. This was done with consultation uh, with OFAC and, and, and the Justice Department. And um, so, as, as, as you said, we didn't lose, uh, the, the ships never went off higher. We lost uh, no revenue as a result of this. We're completely un, unblocked. It's business as usual. Um, I think that in, in the future, there's no getting away from how, how uh, important China will be to, to the LNG market. They're going to become the world's largest importer in a very short period of time above Japan. And so I do see us continuing to work with China. I see this uh, in, in our Chinese partners. I see this as a relative blip. We take sanctions extremely serious. I'm an American citizen myself. I take them as serious as anyone else. Um, but I think this is a pro uh, something you work through. The LNG carriers were never intended to be touched by this sanction. It was intended for Iranian um, uh, oil and gas. And it was just a, uh, it was collateral damage, which has now been resolved. Yeah, that makes sense, Mark. And, and that was our initial read as well, as this was an accident, if anything, uh, and just an unfortunate kind of timing uh, mm -hmm. with your last investor day and, and that stuff. But it sounds like we've worked it out. And the ownership structure is definitely uh, divested and separated from anything associated with Iran at all. So that that is good to hear. Um, that was kind of the main risk that, that kind of got flagged right last quarter, and, and people were talking about that. Uh, let's look at your forward guidance, not necessarily a risk, but there's a $30 million spread there between the lowest and highest expectations. Um, what what are the factors that play into a $30 million spread? Is that rechartering or LPG or what, what's that made of? Yeah, I mean, rechartering is going to be some of it, but uh, I think we've only got kind of net one ship that's going to be coming up, and that's not till the middle of the year, so I wouldn't think that that has a lot of movement. Um, we do have uh, LPG rates that get baked in here. And uh, I think Mark said on the call today that a $5,000 move can be plus or minus around 12 to $13 million of EBITDA. And so, again, if we, we put a line in the sand and if it were to go up or down from there, then there is some movement potential. Uh, the other thing that we try and account for in that range is that you can always have ships that go, uh, go off higher, not due to, you know, so we would build in known dry docks, uh, but you can always have an issue. We're running a fleet of uh, over 80 ships including our LPGs, around 49 LNG carriers, hey, things can always happen. And so we try and build in some flex uh, such that if you do have a ship that goes offline for uh, a week or two here or there, that uh, that we wouldn't miss our guidance. Thanks, Scott. And look, I, I don't want to insult anyone on this live call. We we up to about 40 people now, but understand this is going to go public a little bit later. Can you just confirm what sort of earnings multiple you're trading at into 2020? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, it's almost embarrassing to say because it makes me think there's something wrong. And but you know, believe me, we don't think there is. But I think part of the problem is having the broader analyst community, a lot of the investors, uh, actually looking at earnings uh, as a way of calculating stock prices is, is relatively foreign. Um, I've been at TK for 18 years, and Mark, I think you're a little over that. Uh, I used to be the CFO of a tanker company within the TK organization as well, and we understand that most investors don't want to look at earnings uh, because they can't predict them. We do think that this is a different animal with the stability and the length of our charters uh, and the amount of coverage that we do have, that earnings um, and EBITDA multiples for that matter should actually uh, be used by the analyst community to come up to a stock price. So that's that's my soapbox for a minute, uh, but on slide 66, we say that we're trading at around five times uh, 2020 earnings. And if we were to simply trade where the rest of our peers do, and this is a pretty wide uh, set of um, uh, companies out there, Jay, most of which I'm sure you cover as well, that's they all trade around 9.7 times earnings, and so we'd be at 25 to $30 stock. So that is part of the, the, the table that we're pounding is to get people to really uh, appreciate our earnings. And I think with the 2019 numbers that we raised uh, yesterday, and then we gave the uh, earnings guidance for 2020, which is up. Um, you know, 40 to almost 60% over last year. We really hope that people are going to start to look at those earnings as they come through. Yeah, it's just it's just unbelievable to see a stock like yours trading at five times earnings and really really good uh, roundabout way of coming to that answer, Scott. I know it's, it felt like a, <laughs> it felt like a trick question or something. You know, when you, when I ask you what earnings you're trading at and you have to say five times, it's man, what is this like a coal miner at the peak of the cycle? <laughs> <laughs> like we buy an auto manufacturing in China. Like, I mean, it's it's just yeah. unbelievable uh, for uh, not to be offensive, but almost a boring finance structure like yeah. you have. You're, you're a shipping company, but when you really think about it, uh, you're a financing structure. I mean, it, you're not a whole lot different than, I mean, in my view at least, uh, something like maybe SFL Corp, you know, ship finance or something like that. And, and to see five times earnings, it's just it's just remarkable. But uh, anyways, I, I think we've we've hit that one enough. I, I got, uh, I said about 40 people here on the call. We got some questions. Uh, if you gentlemen are ready, we'll, we'll pivot to some of those. Soup. All right, fantastic. So uh, we've, we've already incorporated a few of those into our discussion. Uh, but look, we, we, we talk about your coverage ratio, and it's looking at almost four times coverage going forward. Uh, you raised the dividend uh, to $0.25. Cents. You said you're going to do that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in May. Yes. Yep. And, and it's part of the Q1 uh, 2020. Uh, that dividend is very easily covered. Um, you're also bringing in $100 million of free cash flow from a Wilco. That's right. Simultaneously, you're also paying down debt related to a Wilco, which helps your delevering. Um, how much of that $100 million could be allocated to some sort of shareholder returns, or is that all meant for deleveraging? Uh, I would say at this point, we have uh, we've given the guidance, like you said, for our distributions. Uh, we do have a $100 million buyback program uh, outstanding, of which we've completed roughly $30 million. Uh, I'm not going to give any guidance that says we're going to spend the remaining $70 in, in any you know immediate uh, length of time. Uh, but I would say that all of this is just simply building us flexibility. And I, I did say on the call today that the, the delevering gives us a lot of flexibility to continue to allocate capital. And, and obviously, shareholder returns are one of our primary places to put that uh, that money. And, um, and so really, that's our focus for this, this year and, and into next is uh, how do we optimize the capital that we do have? And how do we make sure that uh, that we're running this company for the long the long term and rewarding shareholders along the way? Yeah, I know it's a it's kind of a non-answer at points, right? Because you don't know exactly what you're going to do with it. Uh, but you do have a knock bond uh, coming up here in May. 
Uh, is that something you're considering rolling or is that going to be mostly paid down? Yeah, we could pay that off for debt, uh, for cash, sorry. We could pay that off um, in May, given where we expect our liquidity balance to be. Um, I did provide a slide uh, during the call today that showed that we are very competitively priced in Norway. And uh, so it is something that we are considering, and especially with the base rates having come down over the last uh, six months, uh, I think we could actually borrow you know, quite cheaply. So there is a level of, um, whether you call it insurance or whether you call it uh, uh, just wanting to have that extra cash to the bank so that you can use it for uh, for periods of dislocation, whether it be in the equity markets, uh, you know, in the shipping markets, whatever. I think that we would like to probably roll it. We have about 135 million that's rolling in May. Uh, my sense is that we will uh, stick to our delevering message and uh, reduce the size of it if we do decide to roll it in the 75 to 100 million dollar range. So Scott, what, I, what I'm hearing from you, and I tell me if I'm wrong, I don't want to misquote you, but what I'm hearing from you is you could probably roll the entire thing if you wanted to, and it sounds like the rates that you would be getting would, I mean, I know you can't state what rate you would get. That probably wouldn't be smart before you talk to the banks, uh, but on that slide you presented, uh, the rates are very, uh, very competitive. Um, you know, maybe very broad range, right? Because you don't, yep. want to, don't pigeonhole you, but I mean, we're, we're talking like sixes and sevens and stuff like that. So look, I mean, if you could roll the whole thing at sixes and sevens, right, pretty broad range, and your stock, I mean, it trades at five times earnings, right, next year, and it trades at a DCF yield. I mean, you mentioned mid-300s next year, right? So it, it trades at a DCF yield of, in the 20s. So what would stop you from just rolling the whole thing at, you know, sixes or sevens and doing like a tender offer or doing a repurchase at, you know, 20s or 25s? Yeah, that is an option that we have. Um, I think that you're right that we could probably be in the, the sixes and the low sevens in order to to roll the bond. Uh, but I guess I go back to some of what we've been talking about, and I know it's banging a drum and it's not one that's overly exciting to a lot of people, is that that does go uh, kind of counterintuitive to what we're planning with uh, with respect to reducing our leverage. And so the, the trade that you talk about makes a ton of sense on paper, um, you know, but I do think that that actually is adding risk when we're probably in an environment where uh, taking taking some of that financial risk and some of that financial leverage off the table is is probably better uh, long term for both the business and for long term investors. I guess it's twofold, Scott. We talk a lot about delevering, but we also talk about permanent capital. Correct. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just interesting to see that. I, I mean, I know your focus, and it's been clearly messaged at this point, but your focus is on delevering, um, but it's not clear yet, right? We, we're not clear yet if the market will give you credit for that. Uh, hopefully, they will. Uh, it would be great for you to delever into 2020 and 2021 and for the market to finally give you credit. Uh, and you expect them to give you credit, right? So if you expect them to give you credit and for it to be 25 or 30 bucks or somewhere like that, um, it doesn't make sense to, I mean, purchase a little bit more. I mean, maybe not, maybe not all the, uh, maybe not all the knock bond, but, you know, a little bit higher than you've been doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that there is some, there's some validity to that argument. Um, you know, like I said, I, I, we have been buying back stock. Uh, we've taken 3% off the table, uh, which I think is, is relatively aggressive to a lot of the energy companies that are out there right now. Um, we did just raise the, the dividend today. Uh, that's you know That won't be seen until May. I would like to let some of today's news uh, soak into the stock a little bit before we start to uh, um, you know, really decide whether you know there's still a great opportunity for it. I think it's just a little bit too early to tell at this point. Okay. 
hopefully you'll, you know, you'll keep those options open as you go forward into 2020. And, and look, it's a fickle market. I mean, I mean, the last year has been mostly good for you, but uh, you know, look in 20, 2018, the tail end of that was nasty. Um, so if that happens again, it would be good to know that. Sure would. If you guys crash sure. to something ridiculous like the 12s or 13s again, it'd be good to know that you guys aren't going to let that opportunity pass up. You're right. There's a there's a number of macro factors here. To, to your point of seeping in, not only did last year we have some MLP issues, you have a market a Dow that's been ripping for a while, and uh, we're not quite sure when and how that that goes. So we'd hate to get caught out on a on a on a, on a big buyback. Let's uh. Let's stop talking about uh, paying down debt because okay. it's, it's good. I mean, and it's, it's it's prudent in the long term to pay down your debt, but uh, it doesn't uh, interest a lot of investors at this point when they see a stock so cheap. They do want repurchases, but look, they also want dividends. And there's a belief, and I, and I don't think it's an unfounded belief that you know dividends drive these stocks. And I don't think, I mean, your results were fantastic today, but I, I was very pleased. But I, I don't think it's coincidence that you raised your dividend by you know a healthy amount, more than thirty percent, and the stock responded. Right. I don't know. We, we can't, you know, would it say like you can't test a negative null or whatever. You know, like mm -hmm. you can't, we don't know what would have happened if you would have just said nothing or said it's going to stop at, at 19, you know, cents or whatever. But I imagine, I guess, I put out a, you know, a proposition there that your stock wouldn't have went up quite as much. So your DCF is at 350 or, or mid 300s. So let's, let's not misquote you there next year. Um, at what point is it? Is it 5.5 or 5 or 4.5? I know I'm getting a little bit precise here, but at what point do we start paying off a higher percent of that? Because your coverage is four times, right? So you're, you're yeah. really just, you're paying a dividend, but you're, you're delevering so much harder than you're paying a dividend. At what point does that, does that pendulum come back and it really start to excite people with these bigger payouts? I hate to disappoint, but I think one thing we're not going to get drawn on after such a big news of, of, we've been, for the last year, we've been talking about a modest dividend. And to your point, I think the market has received today's news is more than modest. And so we've just done this, and 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 to talk about um, what we're going to do next on the dividend, I think it's a bit premature. So we've given hopefully good news, and I agree with you that is uh, it's not just good results. It's one of the reasons our stock has done has done well today. But I don't think we're going to get too drawn on 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 21 at 2021 at this point. Okay. Is uh, and I know you said you're not going to get drawn on that, so we don't want to pigeonhole you to precise uh, timetables. Uh, but I would encourage you uh, as a company and, and as your entire group to, to do more of these type of events. Uh, I think today's Investor Day was helpful. I, mm -hmm. uh, we had a, a few people that attended in person and they were very uh, pleased right, with your presentation and your openness. And this was the first Investor Day in five years. Um, so yeah. I would encourage you to maybe do an Investor Day next summer or next fall at the latest uh, and continually update the market on that. Um, would it be fair to say that you know the 25 cent dividend is is you know, your 2020 payout, and then you would reassess in, say, October, November. Is that fair to say, or do you not want to take that sort of? No, I, I think that that's right. I would say that we actually talk about shareholder return policies uh, every quarter with our board, um, whether it's distributions or whether it's um, uh, buybacks. We do talk about it every quarter. So, uh, But given the long-term nature of the business, I think that, that we've, we've conditioned people, if you will, and most MLPs, uh, would look at doing annual type increases, and so I think that uh, around this time next year is is probably a safe assumption. Just to kind of take a point, um, I know that the, the average investor doesn't really like talking about le leverage, but for whatever reason, why are we trading so low? And we do believe that it's our leverage that is is perhaps the biggest overhang on our stock today. 
So, so hopefully, hopefully that um, uh, moving down the leverage, regardless of whether they want it or not, is just going to make it move. As, as Scott's mentioned before, when people look at Bloomberg, they can't see the predictability of our cash flows or the, the rapidity at which we're going to pay it down. They just see today's leverage, and, and, and a lot of these guys can't invest. So hopefully we can get beyond that, that screenshot that's preventing a lot of investors from coming in on us. Do you think there's a similar sort of screenshot or a Bloomberg uh, presentation or a Google Finance presentation or a Yahoo Finance presentation that looks at your dividend yield as well? Yeah, they do, uh, for sure. And I would say that investors will look at that. Um, but that's a double-edged sword. I would say that we were we were trading you know, before today. I think we were trading at around a 5 5.5% yield. Uh, if we add in the buybacks, I think I said today we're a total of close to 10% yield. Um, and that, that to me feels pretty good. But if you look at some of our LNG shipping peers, they're now starting to tick up into the 11th and 12% range. And in my opinion, that is difficult from a corporate finance point of view to be paying out that level of dividend because while it may be good for investors, it, it doesn't feel very good um, as a management because you're actually not getting rewarded for the cash you're paying out. And then that, that also is, can be a downward spiral because then investors say, if you're 11 or 12%, what am I missing? I, I must be missing something here because ultimately, um, you know, that to me spells risk. And so there is a there's a fine balance there that says that paying out a very very high yield is not always a good thing. Yeah, I mean it, it can get kind of circular if we we go into it too far on on either topic it right? on paying debt or or on paying a dividend. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, I write on Seeking Alpha and we we have over eleven thousand followers there, and you know, in an efficient market. You would think that a stock would be valued on EV to EBITDA or some sort of multiple like that. Uh, you would think two peers that are the same business uh, would have similar valuations. Um, if anything, you would think the company with longer-term charters and better assets would have a higher valuation. Uh, but look, I mean, you see this dividend yield thing, and, and you wouldn't believe the amount of questions I get on, you know, and I, and I realize it's a retail platform, but look, retail drives these things. I know you guys talk to institutional investors and, and that sort of thing, but look, I mean, retail investors drive these things and they look for yields. And I, I know that's not, you know, if we believe in the efficient market, uh, that doesn't always make sense. Um, but I would just encourage you, right, as you go forward, uh, to think about splitting those. And I, I think you split it this year. I, I think you did, you know, 30% increase. Um, but I would hope going forward, uh, once we get closer to that deleveraging target, I would hope those yields can grow a little bit faster. And obviously, obviously, we'd want the stock to be really high. So I guess in a weird sort of way, that would be a lower yield. Uh, but the payout uh, definitely to be higher. Um, we'll, we'll shift off that because we've, we've really you know, beaten the horse into the ground. Uh, but I think we've, we've really hit the delivering and dividends. A few more questions here, a little bit of a different tone before we wrap up the call. Uh, looking at your forward growth um, perspective. So you mentioned 2023 is the absolute earliest you would be interested in any new projects. Uh, you mentioned sort of maybe some industrial type stuff. Is there the type of stuff you, similar to this Bahrain regas facility where you could, because that really differentiates you guys a little bit. You're operators and it's not just a ship charter. So it's not necessarily 2023, the end of 2023 that needs to be the earliest. As you've seen, our delevering path is earlier. It's just that's when we're seeing the projects. If they would come earlier, then maybe we're interested in, in slightly slightly earlier when our delevering is, is done. To your point about the the projects, I kind of we have a very diverse portfolio. We have the most diverse portfolio in the business, and there's basically two times of of projects which which you can do. You can do the long the long term charter, which is at low rates since your investment grade. That's the type of guitar projects. Then you can do the Bahrain projects, which are higher risk reward. Yamal's another one. We'll continue to seek both sides of the coin. 
it's part of a portfolio. So yes, we will we will look out. We will look for more. To, I can't say Bahrain type of projects, but high risk, high reward projects will always hopefully complement our long annuities uh, projects. So in, in, in simple terms, Qatar is coming out with 60 ships. That is what it is. Another opportunity, perhaps as an example, Mozambique. That's that's more along the lines of a higher risk reward. Excellent. So you mentioned uh, Qatar's and, and Mozambique. Have you? Uh, is that related to Lake Charles at all? Have you looked into that project, or is that separate? The the Qatari project covers a lot of ground. It covers expansion and, and it covers Golden Pass. It it covers all, all the things that Qataris are, are are doing. The Mozambique is restricted to the the and former Antarctic Hotel projects. These are just examples, by the way, Jay. So we might we, we have a number of opportunities we can start look at. In any event, we're not going to be going back and trying to get the world's largest LNG order book for the sake of having that. It'll be selective growth, so I'm not sure we do it all. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're going to do less, but but that's how we'll look at it all. Okay. You know, if I, if I take a framework, and I said I was going to stop beating the horse, but I'll just one more circle back before we wrap up the call. Um, look, I mean, if you, if you take a project like Yamal, which I believe you mentioned mid-10s unlevered, and you slap 80% leverage on that at 6% fixed, uh, like it looks like you did. 75. Um, 75%. Oh, excuse me there. 75, still quite high. Um, you get an ROE in like the 30s, low 30s. Um, is it fair to say that when you look at growth, you use some sort of similar you know, calculation to see what your return on equity is? And is it fair to say that you would look at your return of equity of growth versus maybe your DCF yield or something intrinsically to, to kind of make that decision? So maybe you wouldn't grow it. You wouldn't do any growth at 12, but maybe you might do some growth at 20 or 25? Absolutely. Yeah, no, we, we do look at um, repurchases as simply buying what we think is one of the best fleets, uh, LNG fleets out there, is uh, by buying stock, we're buying our own ships. And uh, so we absolutely run that calculation that says, should we be uh, putting money into something that's obviously got you know build risk, it's got completion risk, all those other things, whereas our uh, ships on the water today are, are a lot less risky than than uh, some new projects could be. So we absolutely look at that and uh, make sure that we're we're holding our head high and said so that this project has to pass more hurdles than than buying our stock back. Okay, thanks, Scott. I, I think that's really the concern of investors is they say when you talk about growth. Uh, their ears perk up and they say, wait a minute, why are you looking at growth? Uh, first of all, because the stock's so cheap. And then second of all, there's a fear of, of dilution, right? Um, and it, it sounds like you have no intentions of issuing stock anywhere remotely close to these levels. Is that, is that fair? It's absolutely fair. And to Scott's, uh, Scott's point, yeah, the first, the, the first investment we look at is always our own fleet. Very happy with the portfolio we have. It's all executed. So that's the first place we look in terms of growth. Okay. And I think we also need to look that we've taken on in the last, I think, four or five years, about three and a half billion dollars of growth and we didn't issue a share. So, uh, you know, I don't think there's any other MLPs, let alone you know, companies that have gone through that level of growth. We've almost grown our fleet by 50 percent and none of that has been uh, has been done through the capital markets. And so I would say that, that, that that's something you've heard from us. You've heard TK say that as well. Uh, I'd say it's something that we take very much to heart and um, for us to go back into the markets, it would have to be for a really, really good reason. Excellent. Thanks for that, Scott. I think that does assuage some of the fears uh, around uh, when you hear growth because it, it's definitely there's a there's a lot of thinking and, and, and modeling and that sort of thing that goes into it. It's not just you want to grow for the sake of growth. When we mention growth, uh, to some part, we're just talking about in, in, in the basic sense, what can we do on retained earnings? Um, and we can do a fair amount on retained earnings based on where, where we're doing. So it doesn't necessarily... 
certainly not going to go and issue equity for growth unless it makes absolute sense. Excellent. And we're also very cognizant of the fact that this is not the market that we had in 2014, 2015. We lived it. Uh, we were there. You know, it wasn't a question of uh, do you grow. It was how fast, and, and it, it was never fast enough. So we also understand that we are very much in a different market. And so we do not want to get back on that internally. We call it the treadmill. Uh, there is nobody internally or on our board or, or even investors for that matter that want to get back on the treadmill. So anything we do uh, would be done as smart as we can. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, we'll do one final question and then we'll wrap up. I, I know you've got a busy day both behind you and a little bit more in front of you, so I appreciate your time. Uh, we're looking at the, the core assets, if you will, of, of TK. And I know you spoke a little bit through this earlier. Uh, but look, you got the uh, you got the LPG ships with Exmar. Yep. And it sounds like that's a long-term business for you. We like that franchise. It's been a great investment for us. Okay, excellent. And then the uh, the smaller multi-gas ships, are those core, non-core? Not so great. Hasn't been a great investment for us. It's been a drag. I think the, the those of you who are familiar with uh, our, our company know that it's been a drag on us. This is the Skagen. Um, it was a drag under Skagen. The good news is that... Um, it is no longer a drag. We've, include, we've improved the revenues, we've improved the, the expenses, we've in, improved the utilization. But to your point, Jay, no, it's, it's not core business. Um, it is not a lot of sellers, um, and we don't need to necessarily sell. It's only worth about a half an LNG carrier, so we're not dying to sell the, that, that fleet, but we will at some point when the time is right. I, I will point out, just to defend Mark a little bit, there's been some amazing work done by the team on the, that fleet. If I look last year, that fleet alone was negative uh, 3.3 million of adjusted EBITDA, and this year we were close to a million positive. So there's been some amazing work done to get that those ships up to uh, at least some level of tradability. It's no longer a direct drag, but it's definitely not producing anywhere near the sort of ROE that you initially hoped for. Correct. Okay. Correct. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, that concludes our live Value Investors Edge call. Uh, just a reminder on disclosures, I am long shares in TGP and TK, and nothing you heard today constitutes investment advice nor any sort of forward guidance. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. To read my research, please navigate to SeekingAlpha.com and search for Jay Mintzmeyer. To access our premium content, you can navigate direct at Mintzmeyer.com. That's M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R.com to sign up for a free trial.